I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one story each week from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. My name is Abby Kinney and I am once again joined by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, Abby. You know, it, it's funny because this week, I don't know if you've noticed, but on Twitter, like this show's getting a lot of love from people. There were quite a few people this week who said like, oh, Upzone's my favorite podcast. And then like, oh no, Upzone's my favorite podcast. And I'm like, yeah, Upzone's my favorite too. Like, I love the job that you do. And I, it's awesome to chat with you every week. So. Well, thanks so much. I know I saw that and I just thought that was so sweet. And that sometimes sweet. I, I forget that people listen to this. Like it just feels like. <laughs> It feels like a phone call that we just yeah. have every week, and it's great to hear feedback from people, and I'm so glad that everybody that reaches out is enjoying it. So that's that makes me happy. It is cool. I do look forward to chatting with you, and then, yeah, it's like weird to think, like, yeah, there are other people listening in. Like, we're talking about something we both are interested in, but yeah, it's just very nice feedback. So thank you to people who are listening. Yeah, it's great feedback. So the article that we are going to be covering today is called States Preempt Cities Almost to the Point of Irrelevance. It was written by Alan Greenblatt and published in Governing. The article starts out by describing an example in Austin, Texas, where local city officials made the decision to divert funds from their police budget in order to purchase two hotels for their homeless population. The governor of Texas has been very critical of Austin's decision to cut their budget and has stated that they will now defund cities that defund their police. In addition to that, he's supporting legislation to essentially block cities from cutting their police budgets entirely to a certain extent. So Texas is not alone in this. States like Arizona, Indiana, Louisiana are considering similar legislation in this type of preemption is not limited to police budgets either. States like Florida, Iowa, Tennessee are all kind of involved in this preemption over things like education, health legislation that affects how local city governments can govern. And this article reports that bills have been introduced in half of U.S. states to put limits on local public health authorities. So state preemption also covers a lot of different hot button issues, issues like minimum wage increases, taxation, gun control laws, and it even goes as far as touching things like parking regulations and design standards, which is something that we've experienced as planning consultants in some cities recently. So the argument on the state side is basically that local communities are not to be trusted to some extent, that the state has the authority to ensure that they are acting constitutionally. And advocates for kind of a more local governing model would say that they have a responsibility to govern in a way that is most helpful to their own constituents, regardless of the state's politics or their perspective. The author presented a really good line that I think is fundamental to this conversation. He asks, if states are going to stop cities and counties from adopting their own spending priorities, no matter how misguided they may be, 
That raises the question of whether localities will be masters of their own fates or merely subservient branch offices to the state. So I love this article because it really forced me to consider at what scale functions of government ought to be managed at. Personally, my first instinct is to promote local autonomy because it is the scale that is most directly related to residents, citizens. And it seems like the state is more connected to kind of private interests oftentimes that could lead to corruption. And obviously there's a lot of nuance in this conversation and the state and federal level of government exists for a reason. So I, I tend to go back to the concern that the state kind of likes to expand their scope in a lot of ways. And I want to know where you've fallen on this topic, Chuck. I've, I've found this to be very challenging. I think it's very easy for me to have my own biases confirmed by this article. I, I very much think states preempt cities way too much. I believe that the federal government preempts states way too much. I thought in getting ready for this, like, let me think through the opposite case and kind of like steel man it a little bit, like say, all right, what is the best case for preemption? I think if you look at this, particularly from the, the progressive side, there's long been this argument that, you know, localities are parochial, they are prone to doing things that are unjust. We can think back in what would be history books for us, but I know is, is lived reality for a lot of people. You know, the idea in the 1960s of, of having segregated schools and then opening them up and localities saying, you know, we have a right to decide this ourselves. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the federal government or the state government the right to enforce this in, in this way. And, you know, having these arguments where like preemption is the thing that, and let's put, you know, air quotes around good guys. It's the, it's the thing that the good guys were all about. Let's take these backward parochial, racist, you know, what have you, uh, local governments run by a good old boys network and let's, you know, let's set things right. Let's make things in our more perfect image of the way they should be. Obviously, I read that history too. And, you know, I would have been the one on the steps saying, like, open up this school, you know, like, let's, let's do this. Like, I, I think most people today who want to be on the right side of history would have said, I think that this was the right thing to do. I think that, you know, the Kennedy administration, I think that the Johnson administration, I, I think that states that participate in it should have done that. Let's now take a cynical look at that. I think that this is where I get a little bit uptight. There's a wrong that was being done and it took this effort to correct that wrong and put us on a different path. Could that wrong have been corrected in a different way? Would localities have eventually figured this out? Would there have been a way? I don't know. But what you have done now by kind of centralizing power, and it, it wasn't just you know racism, school openings. I, I think that's the most kind of clearest case of where we would want state preemption. So that's why I used it, but there's a many other things. Now you have this thing where like the state is a really good tool for anything that you feel is a, a wrong. And the more you can make it like a moral wrong, the stronger the case is for the state intervening. The one that I'm kind of always drawn to is the idea that increasing local taxes dislocates poor old ladies trying to stay in their house. And it, it dislocates, you know, poor people in neighborhoods. If their property taxes are going up 6%, 10%, 15% a year, 
they're going to get put out of their home. So what do we need to do? We need state preemption of local property tax rates, and we need caps on how much you can raise taxes locally. We need things like you know, Prop 13 in California, but there's states like Michigan that do this too, that say, okay, you, you can only increase property taxes so much. These things have, over time, massive distorting effects that create neighborhood disinvestment, that create local government shortages, that induce cities to invest in all kinds of kind of crazy growth schemes to try to meet their next budget. I kind of feel like I can make a case both ways here. If anything, I feel like there's some like judicious use of this, but I think there's always got to be a recognition when you're using state intervention that someone who has a different set of right and wrong than you is going to ultimately have that power and use state preemption for themselves. So is this a tool we want to have or not? And I, I think that's a deep like philosophical discussion of how we structure government. The question that that I've been having is how do you kind of divorce the moral questions and the perceptions that people have about where power should be based on whatever their political leanings are? You know, I would be remiss to ignore that there is often a partisan divide between cities and states, which is very clearly reflected in this article. The article touches on that dynamic where right-leaning rural interests are kind of overweighing the interests of, of the more left-leaning urban areas. And, and it doesn't talk about where it is opposite. Right. I think if you went back to the 60s and 70s, it, it was the opposite of that, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. and even today in places like California or Oregon, you're seeing state preemption going the other way, which unfortunately the article didn't really talk about that. And I wish that they would have kind of touched onto that because if you are, say, left-leaning, you might read this article and say that state preemption is bad, but um, it's going the opposite direction in some places. And what I really want to get at is a rational approach, regardless of political persuasion. I think it could be easy to advocate for like whichever level of government you most agree with politically. If the state has the most power and you happen to agree with them, then you may think that state preemption is a great thing. But that's not necessarily a principled argument because that could very easily flip in five, 10 years. So I think that there needs to be kind of a principle that we follow about when should the state step in to local issues and when are they micromanaging the local authorities? That California example is a really good one because I, I mentioned Prop 13 the limit on property taxes. And let's just be clear what these limits on property tax increases do. If you're a local government in 2008 and your property tax base drops by 20% in a housing correction, it takes you nine years of 3% increases a year to get back to where you were. So cities that had their property taxes, their value dropped by 20%. It took them until 2017 to actually get back to the level of taxation, the level of revenue that they would have had based on that same tax base. Even though property values jumped back up and that dip was only temporary, we reinflated the housing bubble. You look at California and the, the big preemption now is the idea of do we force a ban on single family zoning in cities across the state? And, and there's a lot of people in our conversation about cities and housing and development saying, well, of course we need to do that. And, and I would argue that every city should do this. Every city should see this in their own interest. But I've also argued that I think this is a bad statewide policy. 
and I kind of argue that from a philosophical standpoint of a live by the sword, die by the sword kind of mentality. Like I might think this is good for every city. I'm not sure that it is good for every city. And I'm also not sure that forcing this on a statewide basis is actually going to get you to the outcome you want. I don't want to turn off our audience. I don't parade my Catholicism as much, although I, I do refer to it often. In the Catholic Church, there is this idea of subsidiarity, this idea that you know decisions should be made at the lowest level that they can they can competently be made. And a, a part of that notion is the idea that people will make the wrong decision. A competent decision is not necessarily one you agree with. It's just one that that individual or that group or that neighborhood or that city has the capacity to make. And th there's a certain like sense that goes along with that, that there's an understanding that a lot of places will make the wrong decision or a lot of individuals or a lot of families or a lot of neighborhoods, you know, go to whatever level of decision-making that a lot of them will make the wrong decision, but that inherently as humans, we will bend our arc of progress towards making the right decision and, and moving in the right direction. And over time, injustices will be corrected and, and wrong decisions will be fixed. And the more dynamism we have in our system, the more opportunity there is to, yes, make mistakes, but also to fix mistakes and learn from them and move on. I feel like that's the thing we give up. And it's why I have been kind of more willing to tolerate bad decisions as opposed to uh, be welcoming and inviting of state preemption or federal preemption of states or or more centralized and top-down management. I, I actually believe in our capacity to solve problems if we're given the dynamism to do it, even though that's messy and ugly. And sometimes in the case of like, you know, not allowing black children to attend white schools, it's grotesque and offensive. And certainly I have not been harmed by that, which I'll acknowledge maybe I would look at it differently if I were on like the harmful end of that. But it's that sense of like, where are we going to progress as a society? And I, I never believe that like locking things into amber from a top-down centralized policy will, will get us there. So when those discussions about states preempting cities to, you know, get rid of single family zoning, for example, started to come up, I fell in the same boat and I feel like it isn't a very popular opinion but the way that I've been looking at it is, you know, if if the argument is that single family housing is discriminatory, for example, then that ought to be challenged in court because wouldn't that be a constitutional issue? So, you know, if something is unconstitutional, then you argue it as un unconstitutional. And if it is proven to be unconstitutional, then cities can't do it because cities have to operate under state and federal constitution. So that's kind of been, and I'm not an attorney, but that's kind of been my perspective on it is that, you know, just like, just like discriminating in schools, well, cities can't do that because that is against how this country operates. That's against our federal constitution. You can't do that. So I, I feel like instead of preemption as like the tool to get that done, it, it ought to be challenged in a court instead. It, and that, that's kind of brings me to that argument that that the article brought up because the, the argument for state preemption is oftentimes that cities can't be trusted to act constitutionally. That keeps being brought up and you kind of hear that in, in the political theater 
oftentimes that that cities are not going to do the right thing. But if that if that happens, isn't there some system of accountability? I mean, there's the judicial system to press charges if if a city is doing something that is unconstitutional and that they actually aren't allowed to do under federal or state law. So it seems like the tool of preemption is not necessarily a, a good one if you're making the argument that cities can't be acting constitutionally. And it, it, it seems like it's more like a trust issue here that's, that states just ultimately don't trust cities. And it seems like it's it's just very disingenuous to try to micromanage cities and not let them make their own mistakes and kind of learn over time. And it's almost like it's almost like an overbearing parent trying to control their teenager and not accept that their teenager is going to make their own mistakes and have to learn over time and that there are repercussions to people making their mistakes and growing from them. And, you know, I won't argue that local governments are perfect and they won't make mistakes, but it just it just seems like we are trying to micromanage when we do things like you know, when states want to preempt cities. A lot of the uh, the civil rights arguments over state preemption were descended from court cases, you know, where court cases said, like, this is a discriminatory practice. You know, a lot of what you saw with National Guards coming in and forcing integration and what have you was a direct result of, of what you're describing, which is a court intervention saying this is a violation of the Constitution. I agree with you in that sense. Like, that makes a lot of sense. I think that the hard part you brought up, are single-family homes discriminatory? Clearly, when you look at the relationship between different branches of government, legislative branches, judicial branch, executive branch, you have this reflection of society that is this evolving understanding. I don't think anyone 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly not a large number of people, would have looked at single family housing as being discriminatory in that way. Like that is a, it still is a, a, a niche kind of point of view. It's not a mainstream point of view. And maybe there's a strong case to be made there. Like maybe there is, and maybe, you know, a series of courts would agree with that. I, I don't know. We did the series on your city, Kansas City, where we looked at redlining and we looked at the impacts of redlining and we looked at what these neighborhoods were like today that had been redlined and what could be. And the, the thing that we clearly recognized more than any state intervention or federal intervention is that Kansas City did huge amounts of damage to itself. The discriminatory pass of Kansas City did a lot of self-harm to not just the, the minority populations that were redlined and discriminated against, but to the, the white populations and the majority populations and the people in power in Kansas City, they spited themselves, you know, they did self-harm. To me, that that realization or that actualization is something that I think needs to be the, the dominant evolutionary force here. The idea that like we are better off when we're all better off. We are better off when our neighborhoods are doing well. When we discriminate against people, when we push people to the side, when we don't, you know, we put obstacles in people's way, when we price people out of our city, we may have like evil motives for that. We may have benign motives for that, but we're all worse off. Like financially, we're all worse off opportunity wise. We're all worse off as a community of people living together. And so I feel like the dominant mode of transformation 
if we're talking societal, uh, you know, we're talking cultural, political, has got to be bottom up in these bottom up realizations taking hold and you understanding that and I understanding that and we communicating it to our neighbors and growing this understanding throughout the community and seeing that our community is lagging behind the one over there that has figured this out. To me, that's how progress is made. The idea that progress would be made by the state capital deciding, you know what, here's what will happen in every city in the state is, okay, let me go back to Catholicism again. There's a lot of people in my church who would like to ban abortion next year and just say like, you can't do it anywhere. And I think there's a recognition amongst a large group of Catholics that that would not really do anything. Like that would not really change because you actually, if you, if that's the issue you're most passionate about, you have a lot of work to do in the trenches with people's hearts and minds and perceptions and understandings and relationships and 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 security. I think the same goes for any evolution of a society. If if we want more housing, if we want housing policies to be less discriminatory, if we want, we actually have to work at it at the human level. And state preemption just ultimately runs, it's like a steroid, it's like a quick fix to the problem you're trying to solve without actually dealing with the real problem, which is the underlying human element. That's really interesting. And I think it goes back to like changing hearts and minds. You have to convince people of of your perspective. And doing that in a bottom-up way is typically going to yield best results because you can learn from other cities. You can see what has worked and what has failed. And if states just dictate what everybody does, you don't really have the opportunities to do things creatively, to try new things. Society is not perfect. I, I mean, it's not my goal, at least, to make society perfect. But I think that society can be innovative, especially if you let people have skin in the game, if you let people take part in, in their communities and how we legislate our communities, how we how we govern ourselves. I think that that is really important. And it's unfortunate that states seem to have a lot of control over what happens. And when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to things that are deemed discriminatory, I think there's definitely there's definitely a role in making that argument, making the case, and then getting that into into law, you know, at a at a higher level because that that's really important because it bounds the principles that we all operate under. And there is a level to that. And if we're talking about subsidiarity, it's like, okay, there's the federal level. We have a constitution. We need to protect people's rights. But you have to make that argument to that all the way to that level and and make sure that 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 becomes like the principle of the land and everybody's certain opinion about about all the other things that are more of a moral moral opinion or justification for things it might be different in different places people might have different perspectives and so it could i give an olive branch to the, yeah. the centralizers the people who do think like state preemption is the way to go on on so many issues if we're going to be consistent or if we're going to have a, a set of principles that we would apply to a situation like this. I do think that there are situations where things get so out of whack at the local level that maybe there is a need for state preemption. Single family zoning might be one of them. If I did a state preemption, I would always have a time limit. That I guess that's my olive branch is like, if you were sitting down at the table saying, we're going to vote for this preemption and we want Chuck Marone to support it, or we want you know uh, you to come along, 
I would say the only way that I would support a, a state preemption like that is if there was a time limit, five years, eight years, 10 years, something where then the state preemption went away and cities were able to kind of go back to dynamism again, go back to reacting. So it's almost like saying like, look, this is really out of whack. It's actually really out of whack because of prior state policies that encouraged this and made this happen and, and screwed this up. Now we're going to try to undo those nasty state policies. So we're going to have this other preemption, but the goal is to actually remove all preemption and, and, and like get back to a state of kind of organic dynamic growth at the local level. And so this is going to be like a eight year transition. So every city has to allow, you know, there's no single family zoning neighborhoods. You have to allow at least a duplex in every neighborhood go forth. And then in eight years, that rule will go away. But in eight years, you're going to see that this is not scary and freaky and your city's actually better off. And we're going to, we're going to kind of nudge you in a different direction. Does that feel like a compromise that people could get their minds around? Maybe, <laughs> no, it's, it, you know, it doesn't feel as fringe to me because I, I feel like I, I have my head wrapped around the argument, but you know, it's it to a lot of people that is a crazy concept to people who are not in this world and it can be framed a lot of different ways. I think to some people that's seen as like you're taking something from me, but I kind of see it as like, well, you know, it's your property. You should have the right to have a duplex. Like why why wouldn't you have the right to be able to do that with your property? It doesn't hurt anybody. So that's kind of the way that that I see it. But it is kind of fringe and maybe maybe one day people will be more flexible about about their communities and and come to understand but i think that changing people's minds and helping them understand a different way of looking at how communities can be built does start at the local level but and we haven't even talked about regionalism which i think we should talk about at some point someday not a fan this is probably a place where you and i diverge more than anything, but I, I'm, you know, I've always struggled with the the federal intervention in regionalism. Regionalism as a bottom up organic result, yes. Regionalism as like responding to federal incentives for regionalism, uh, struggle with. But interesting, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. Yeah. yeah, we'll get there. I want to dig into that at some point because I've been thinking about it for a while, and um, you know, I don't have a fully formed opinion, but I definitely want to explore maybe regionalism is a good is a good alternative to like state authority over a lot of things. Well, let's look for an article. And if if we're looking for one place to uh, support preemption, I would support state preemption against all sports stadiums. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't talk to me about sports stadiums this week if anyone's curious, just google Kansas, Kansas City, City soccer, soccer stadium. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, very very much related to our our article on Arizona from last week. So unfortunately, we we're not held to the same standards. So, well, we'll leave it at that. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything that's been consuming our time this week. What have you been up to, Chuck? So one of my board members, Ian Rasmussen, is kind of this productivity maven. He's one of these guys who like, you know, I get up on the left side of the bed because I get 3.2 more seconds of whatever. One of the things that he did once that I thought, okay, this is hilarious. He actually has timed because he 
he rides into Manhattan on a train. He's actually timed the exact place where he sets his Starbucks order so that the cup is set right on the, you know, like your Starbucks is done right as he's walking by to his office. And he showed me how he can do like he has a time perfectly. Anyway, he recommended the book to me, Atomic Habits. And it's a New York Times bestseller, sold millions of copies. It sat on my shelf for a year since our last board meeting. And I finally got around to reading it. And I'm not impressed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I know that all these people love this book. And I've had like other people in my life say, Atomic Habits is just great. The introduction starts out with him talking about wanting to write a book. And so like, here's what you do. Sit down and write a blog. I wrote a blog two days a week. And after a while, I built up to writing a book. And I'm like, I, I don't need this book. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I, I've always struggled with self-help books or like, you know, productivity books. I'm not saying like I'm super productive and I'm super, but I, this is not where I struggle in life. I struggle in life with other things. So Atomic Habits, I'm sure it's a great book. I quit after a short period of time because I'm like, this is not, this is not the book for me. So I feel like I'm pretty productive too, but you know, there's not every self-help book is going to work for everybody. And I I want a self-help book to help me run on a treadmill and not be extremely bored. Something like that. Yeah. I don't know. John Pattison in our office listens to all these podcasts and, and does the write-ups for them. And he's also started Atomic Habits, which is kind of why I'm like, okay, well, I'll pick it up off the shelf. And, and I, I feel bad because him and I have such similar book tastes and we enjoy talking about books. Not this one, John. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, John. Well, I don't have a book to share this week. I wanted to share part two of the never-ending bathroom saga. We are still dealing with the sink. It's getting better now. But I was telling you last week that we were working to thaw out the pipes downstairs because it's been so cold recently. This is like the first day that I it's I saw some of your up. photos on Facebook and that was Horrible. sad. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very sad. Yeah. The good news is that they thawed out. <laughs> but the bad news is that I was messing with the faucet supply line and loosened it up. And so when it did thaw in the middle of the night, it's water under pressure everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it came down to a very wet bathroom. The water went down into the basement behind the wall and, and we went down there and it was like a sheet of ice above so the electrical sorry. panel. Well, the good news is that our friend is an electrician and my husband and him got all the ice off. So we are good, but yeah, it's like the joys of owning a house that that basically took up the whole week again this week. So we spent so much time in the basement, more time than I ever want to spend in the basement. So I'm sorry. I think we mentioned this last week, or at least I've said it in other places as a Minnesotan is always a certain uh, like smug satisfaction you get when other people struggle with cold because they'll be like, <laughs> oh, it's 40 degrees. It's so cold. And I'm like, it's 30 below. Like, shut exactly. up. <laughs> um, but this week has not been fun because I've watched, you know, good friends from Texas and, and other places. I have a lot of friends in Shreveport and they've just been struggling with water problems and pipes freezing. And, you know, these are places that we can be critical of and say, you know, well, they should have known or they should have been aware. But the reality is, is like, you don't deal with five days or six days of deep freeze in these places like this. And so the idea of having your pipes insulated and having, you know, the, it's just, there's no reason for it. Like I get it. 
it's sad to see. And there's people who have died and been tragically like injured from this. And it's, it's very sad. I, I felt bad when I saw your photos because I know the damage that does, you know, just to you as a person, you just feel like, oh, I'm drained by having to deal with these issues. And uh, I don't know. I feel sorry. I'm glad it's, re- I'm glad it's resolving itself. Every time we have any issues with our house, I feel like I learn so much about how a house works. And I'm very thankful to my husband who knows how to actually fix things. So I'm I'm learning a lot. We actually have some family that's down in Texas and they have had the worst week. And yeah, it's like while you're kind of like, you know, every, everybody's like, haha, Texas, but it's also really bad. And you know, the houses are not built to deal with this kind of weather that the entire society is not built to deal with this kind of weather. It would be like asking us to, you know, know what to do if a hurricane happened. I mean, it's just not something you prepare for. And it's not something, especially if you grew up in Texas, why would you even know to drip your faucets, for example, you know, just little things like that, that to us, it's like second nature. And to people who don't experience cold weather like this, it is not second nature. And it's not something that people grow up learning how to do. It, it's unfortunate. They have our empathy, no doubt. The, the audience doesn't know this, but you and I have used this platform for recording our podcast that has just audio only. And all of a sudden this week, they're now offering video. So you and I can actually see each other and we're not going to be releasing the video on this one. We may in the future at some point decide to do that for other podcasts. But I realize now, because we're at like the 35 minute mark, we have the the Midwest problem now of not wanting to end conversations. And I think it's going to be worse (laughs) when we can see each other because I like want to keep talking to you and, you know, our format is to finish these things in like 25 minutes and we're already like 10 minutes over. So, yeah, you can just imagine us uh, standing <laughs> in like a foyer or, you know, outside of a door <laughs> talking, doing the Midwest yeah. goodbye. That takes 20 minutes. The long goodbye. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, Chuck. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Get down tonight.